The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are ready to study God's Word, to put the distractions of the past week and anticipations and worries about the coming week aside so that we can focus on the Word. We need to take a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the insight that it gives us into our very soul because it is your word that defines reality. Father, we pray that as we study these things that we would be challenged as the Holy Spirit makes them real to us and that we might be able to have a greater understanding of how these doctrines apply in our own lives and a greater appreciation for all that you have provided for us. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You're not getting any audio up there? Up to the computer. Oh, it's just so much fun when we start with a <clears throat> new technology. Is this, are both speakers working? Is this speaker on the left working? No, uh, my, my left, you're right. And this other speaker over here sounds very loud, is that right? Yeah, the speaker on my right is very loud. Okay, did you hear what I was saying? This speaker over here is really loud. Okay. Good place to start this morning. First Thessalonians 5.18 states that in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This same thought is echoed in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in verse 20, chapter 5. He says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now, a couple of things to note about verse 20 that we will find in our passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. And that is the mention of always and also the object of thanks, all things. It is an instructive study to study the all things in Scripture and the all things that God has provided for the believer, which is the focus of our study today. In fact, this morning's message can be titled, Doctrine Works, 
negative volition doesn't. And that's what Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is all about. The other thing that we should note, if you look at the context of these two verses that talk about thanksgiving, if you look at the context of 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the following verse, verse 19, gives the command not to quench the Holy Spirit. And then if you look at the context of Ephesians 5.20, just two verses prior to this, Ephesians 5.18, we have the mandate to be filled by means of the Spirit. So what we see in both verses, when the emphasis is on gratitude in the life of the believer, it is something that is directly related to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We are to give thanks in everything and for all things. Now, the all things, I think, that if we were to take the time this morning, and we're going to focus on some of them, but not the use of that phrase through Scripture, the all things refers to everything that God has given us in Jesus Christ. That is always the starting point. It's not a starting point with circumstances. That's what we see in our passage in, in Corinthians, is Paul is not focusing on circumstances when he gives thanks in relationship to the Corinthian church. He is focusing on what they have in Christ. That's the starting point, and circumstances then flow as a secondary area of thanksgiving after that. So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, and Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, we have taken time out the last two weeks in order to study the important doctrine of positional truth because it is positional truth and the reality of positional truth that underlies everything Paul is going to say to the Corinthians. That's why he emphasizes it in this introduction. And I have stated in the last two weeks <clears throat> that we see this emphasized three times in the opening verses. He says that these believers, in verse 2, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Then again, in verse 4, everything, the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 5, they have been enriched in him. It is that position in Christ that is ours, that is the same for every single believer, that includes, at the very least, the 40 things that God has done for every believer at the instant of salvation. These are not experiential realities, but these are positional realities that are ours for all time, and that's the basis for the Christian life. And I notice that Al is still running it in the bulletin, but he has been running the list of 40 things that are ours in Christ for a good while, and that's an excellent study to have because a lot of times people are not sure what those 40 things are that God has provided for us, but they are spiritual realities, spiritual blessings. They have to do with our salvation in Christ. They have to do with the foundation for the spiritual life, and that we have been given everything at the instant of salvation, and that is what is called the sufficiency of grace or the sufficiency of Christ that we have not only been given everything necessary for the spiritual life, but we have been given more than enough. We rarely tap into but a small percentage of what God has provided for us in terms of facing life's problems and in terms of living the spiritual life. So this is Paul's starting point for Thanksgiving and should be our starting point as we go through life that Thanksgiving begins with an understanding of grace. It begins with an understanding of what Christ provided for us at the instant of salvation. And if you're not living a life of gratitude, then you're not living a life based on grace orientation. Your level of gratitude for what's going on in your life is a barometer 
of your own grace orientation. It gives you an opportunity to do a little self-evaluation in that area. <clears throat> Paul begins by saying, I thank my God always concerning you. Now, this is a typical introduction in Paul's epistles, with the exception of two, 2 Corinthians and Galatians, where he is really reaming out those congregations. With those exceptions, Paul always begins with a certain amount of thanksgiving. He addresses it here to my God, <clears throat> making it very personal. My God always concerning you, and the concerning you as we have studied in the past has to do with the preposition peri, which is a preposition of substitution and emphasizes intercessory prayer. And this is a responsibility for every single believer to be involved in intercessory prayer for other believers, for family members, for friends, for loved ones, for um, people you are involved with on a daily basis, for employers or employees, for associates, for government figures, for leaders in the, in the local church, the pastor, the deacons. And that is a responsibility to be involved in that every single day. So Paul says, I give thanks, I thank my God always concerning you. And now following that, we have a <coughs> causal construction in the, in the Greek which gives the reason uh, or the cause for his thanksgiving. He is thankful for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, this is important because a lot of people stop with that phrase, for the grace of God. And the Greek word here for grace is the Greek word charis, which is the root of another word that we find in Greek and that we will find later on in the epistle, and that is charisma. Charisma looks like this in the Greek. It's where we get our word charisma. C-H-A-R-I-S-M-A, and refers to grace gifts and is a term that is used to refer to the spiritual gifts. Now, if you look at this passage, Paul does talk about the spiritual gifts down in verse 7. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift, verse 7. Now, what happens here? is that because of the problem of spiritual gifts, because of the problem of speaking in tongues, when we get down to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, everybody wants to read that back into this introduction, especially the mention of grace in verse 4. As soon as you get to the word grace, everybody seems to want to take a divergence and start talking about the spiritual gifts. But see, the grace that, he's, that Paul has in mind here in verse 4, is defined by the relative clause that follows God. It says, For the grace of God which... The grace of God which is the use... The grace of God which was given to you is the use of an aorist-passive participle with an with a article in the Greek. So we have the verb didomi... D-I-D-O-M-I, which means to give or to grant and always emphasizes grace. The didomi here is an aorist passive participle. Now, this is just a nice time to illustrate why it's important to understand grammar and syntax. It is preceded by the definite article. That means that it is to be taken as a substantive or as a relative. It is defining the word grace. 
And since it is an aorist participle, that means the action of the participle precedes the action of the main verb. And the main verb is, I thank. So he is thankful for something that has happened in the past, something that preceded his thanksgiving. He gives thanks, and because it is passive, it's emphasizing the fact that this is something that the Corinthian believers receive, because a passive voice means that the subject receives the action of the verb. The subject does not perform the action of the verb, so the Corinthians are on the receiving end of grace that is not based on something they do. Grace is never based on anything that we do. It is based on everything that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So the emphasis here is that something that was given in the past, and this is at the instant of the Corinthian salvation. At that instant, they received the 40 things that God does for every single believer in Christ, and that is part of our positional reality, part of our positional truth. So Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you because of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, there are several categories of grace, but this describes a particular category of grace that he is thankful for. For example, we have antecedent grace. Now, this is not a doctrine that I have had time to develop for you. Antecedent means that which comes before, that which precedes. And antecedent grace is the grace that uh, characterize the plan of God in eternity past. It is the grace that precedes the creation of the angels, the grace that precedes the creation of mankind, that God in his omniscience knew that creatures would fall, and so God provided a grace plan for mankind to provide for their salvation. That is not the subject of this phrase. It, it, that is not the grace which was given us in Christ Jesus. Then there is common grace. Common grace refers to the undeserved blessings of God that are common to both believer and unbeliever. We may, unbelievers may live in a country where there is a large, where there exists a large number of believers, and because of blessing by association, they, they live in a prosperous country, a country where there is security and safety, and a, and a nation where there is freedom. They, uh, equally benefit from good weather. They equally benefit from, uh, all of the various positive circumstances of life, and that is all part of common grace, God's undeserved favor, undeserved blessing to the unbeliever and believer alike. That is not what we are talking about in verse 4. Then there is efficacious grace. Efficacious grace describes the effectiveness of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, that as God the Holy Spirit takes your faith, the faith of a spiritually dead unbeliever, and makes it effective for salvation. See, anybody can believe, and just because you believe in Christ, that doesn't automatically do the trick. There has to be some work there by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit takes our faith, the faith of a spiritually dead unbeliever, and makes it effective for salvation. That is not what we're talking about in verse 4 either. Then there is saving grace, and that is the grace of God to provide a perfect plan of salvation at the cross. That is not what we're talking about here. Then there is the grace related to the spiritual life, which comes in two factors, logistical grace and greater grace, which are all part of the spiritual life. That's what is really being discussed here, the grace that was given to every single believer at the instant of salvation, the grace that relates to salvation, our redemption, Christ, I mean, God the Father is propitiated, but it goes further than that to provide the, uh, all of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the believer. 
the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, the sealing of God the Holy Spirit, the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the filling of God the Holy Spirit, all of these are ours as a result of our position in Christ. We are empowered. We are regenerated. We're given a new nature. All of these are part of what we have, what the believer has, by virtue of his position in Jesus Christ. So when we come to verse 4, the concept of grace here is clearly defined in context. It is not talking about spiritual gifts, although certainly spiritual gifts are part of what we receive at the instant of salvation. At the instant of salvation, every single believer is given at least one spiritual gift. Uh, the, some spiritual gifts are overt and obvious, such as uh, teaching or evangelism. Other spiritual gifts are less obvious, the gift of helps, the gift of mercy. Uh, some people uh, utilize their gift of helps or their gift of mercy in the realm of prayer, and they spend a tremendous amount of time interceding for other believers. That is an unseen ministry. Spiritual gifts don't have anything to do with spiritual maturity. Just because somebody has a, a tremendous impact as an evangelism does not mean they're any more or less mature than some believer who uh, <clears throat> sits in the quietness of their own home and spends hours and hours and hours in prayer for someone, or some believer who just quietly and out of the generosity of their own soul exercises the spiritual gift of giving and gives tremendous amounts of their resources to missionaries and to local churches and to help other believers who are financially destitute. So these spiritual gifts are unseen and unnoticed by everyone except by God, but that has nothing to do with spiritual maturity or immaturity just because something is more obvious. So Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to the next verse. He says that in everything. Notice that this is very similar to what I, note, I pointed out in Ephesians uh, 5, verse 20. The everything, in everything, in all things, you were enriched in him. This is what the believer has. The all things is the plural of the Greek word pas, which means everything or all things. That in all things you were enriched in him. Notice once again that the direct object of the verb in him tells us the sphere where the enriching takes place. Now, we have to make a couple of observations in relationship to exegesis here to understand what Paul is saying in verse 5. He begins with the Greek word hati, which is translated that, which indicates an explanation. It is not a, a causal construction here. It is an explanation of the grace that has been provided for the believer at the instant of salvation, that in everything you were enriched. And here we have the second person plural, aorist passive indicative of the Greek word plotizo. The verb here looks like this, P-L-O-U-T-I-Z-O, and is related to the noun plutos, P-L-O-U-T-O-S, which means rich, to be, has to do with rich, and in the plural, it has to do with riches, which is how we normally find the word in the New Testament. And platizo means to make rich, to make wealthy, and to endow above and beyond what is necessary. So what we have here is the idea that we have been made wealthy in Him. We are spiritually wealthy. 
We have more than we could ever imagine or ever hope for or ever ask for, and it's already been given to us in Jesus Christ. It is ours in him, and we have been given everything um, that we could possibly imagine or possibly need for any contingency in life. I want you to notice that our uh, riches are supplied by God. So at the instant of salvation, we are given a vast portfolio, uh, portfolio of innumerable spiritual assets. These are the same for every single believer. It doesn't differ from one believer to the other. They are ours. We, they have been put in our spiritual bank account for us to draw on and for us to spend. That's the purpose of money. Now, this is not something that uh, you are to sit on and say, well, I've got this in my bank account, so I want to keep it there. The purpose that God has given us this spiritual capital is for us to spend it, for us to use it in our spiritual life. So we have been enriched, we've been made rich, we've been endowed with a tremendous amount of spiritual wealth in order to face any situation that we run into in life. This is the doctrine of our spiritual riches and is further uh, <clears throat> explained in, in a few other passages. For example... In Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, Paul states, In him, once again, positional truth in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So one of the 40 things that we have in Christ is redemption. Another of the 40 things has to do with forgiveness. This is not a, the, the phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses, is not an appositional phrase. Uh, forgive, an appositional phrase is a phrase that's it's like a parenthesis. It gives a synonym or it gives a, a, a further... Uh, or it just states the previous clause in another in another way. But redemption and forgiveness are two have two separate meanings. Redemption means to purchase, and forgiveness means to blot out. Forgiveness means to remove something. It is it is ultimately it's interesting. Both redemption and forgiveness are financial terms. They're accounting terms in in their root. Redemption means to buy something or to purchase it. And forgiveness has to do with forgiving a debt. And that's one of the best ways to understand forgiveness. If somebody owes you something, let's say somebody owes you fifty or $60,000, and you have a, uh, a, uh, an instrument of debt which indicates that exactly what they owe you and that it's due on a certain, uh, within a certain time frame. And when that time frame is up, you forgive that debt. What does that mean to forgive that debt? That means that you take that instrument of debt, that, that loan agreement, and you tear it up and you throw it away. You don't just stick it back in the file so that uh, six months down the road when things suddenly turn, turn uh, sour on you that you go pull it out and you go back to that person and you say, okay, uh, you owe me this $60,000. I didn't uh, call, call the debt six months ago, but I'm calling it now. See, if you do that, you never forgave the debt. See, that's what forgiveness means. It means to completely do away with something. So when somebody does something to you or something happens to you that hurts you, where your feelings are hurt or whether they have insulted you, whether it's real or imagined, or they have done something harmful to you, real or imagined, no matter how extreme it might be, when you forgive them, it's like forgiving a debt. You tear it up and you forget about it. You don't hold it against that person. You don't call it up in your mind and uh, enjoy thinking about revenge and, and uh, getting back at them. You don't tell anybody else about what they've done. You don't malign them. You don't gossip about them. You don't run them down. You don't come to a prayer meeting and say, well, you know, I have this prayer request, and I'm really struggling with such and so, and then use that as an excuse to talk about 
what they did to you, and that's just a, a backward way of, uh, of gossiping about that person. We have redemption, and because we have redemption, because the price has been paid, the result is that forgiveness can be enacted. So what we have here is uh, an ellipsis of a sort where all of the uh, connections between the phrase redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses are not stated. We have redemption, which is the basis for the forgiveness of our trespasses. And what is the standard for forgiveness? That is expressed in the next phrase, which in the Greek is expressed by the preposition kata, which always means according to a standard. And the standard is the riches of God's grace. That is the standard, the wealth of God's grace, the multifaceted dimensions of God's grace, which is his undeserved merit or undeserved, or undeserved unearned blessing toward mankind. And then we have a prepositional clause, I mean, a, excuse me, a relative clause at the beginning of verse 8. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And so the riches of his grace have been lavished upon us. And here we have the word, the Greek word, perisuo. Perisuo looks like this in the Greek. P-E-R-I-S-S-E-U-O. And this is a word that is usually translated abundance, but it really has the idea of superabundance. It is to have such an abundance of something that it is more than sufficient, more than anyone could possibly spend or utilize. It is to, means to have much more than enough, or to have a, or to have a an overabundance or superabundance. Uh, the verb indicates that uh, something exists in abundance which means with the implication that it is considerably more than what anyone would ever be expected to utilize. So this is the idea in Ephesians 1.8 that he lavished his grace and riches upon us so that we have more than we could ever imagine, more than we would ever possibly need. It is always enough and it is always going to be enough and it will never run dry. That bank account that God has provided for us in terms of our riches in Christ, is never going to be over, overdrawn. There is always going to be more than enough there to meet any and every contingency, any and every problem, any and every difficulty in life. Second, Ephesians is filled with the riches that we have in Christ. Someday we'll get a chance to do, our, do a study of Ephesians. Ephesians uh, 1.18, Paul states, I pray that the eyes of your heart, that is talking about our spiritual perception, heart there should be rendered mind because it has to do with thinking. It is not our emotion that is enlightened, but our thinking is enlightened. I pray that the thinking of our soul may be enlightened. That means that we can move from darkness into light. Darkness always represents human viewpoint thinking, and light always represents truth. And so when we are enlightened, that means that the human viewpoint darkness in our soul is being replaced by the light of the truth of God's Word. So Paul prayer, Paul's prayer is that the eyes of, our, of, of the thinking of our soul, that the perception of our heart, of our thinking, may be enlightened with the result that you might know something. See, it's not talking about emotion here. It's talking about knowledge. And the enlightening of our heart, that is our mind, is so that we may know something. We may have a certain understanding what, and this is related to the hope, that is, the confident expectation 
of his calling. Hope is a word that always relates to that sixth spiritual skill, that sixth stress buster of our personal sense of our eternal destiny. So what Paul is praying for the Ephesians here is that they can understand something related to the purpose of our calling. See, the purpose of our calling isn't just so that we can get through the problems of life here and now. The purpose of our calling eventually is to be trained so that we can come back with Jesus Christ at the second coming so that we can rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. And that is part of our inheritance. That is part of uh, being a joint heir with Christ if we suffer with him in Romans chapter 8. So that Paul's prayer is that we can come to understand this as epinosis doctrine in our soul, understand what is the hope that is the confident expectation of his calling that is focusing on our eternal destiny. And then he says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? See, that phrase is appositional to the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling is the riches of the glory of his inheritance. It has to do with our inheritance in the future. So the believer's life today is to be determined by what we're going to be in eternity. We need to think that with each decision we make today, each decision you make from how you use your time every day to how you uh, function as a husband or a wife, how you function as an employee or employer, how you handle your money, uh, how you redeem your time, all of that is related to preparation for ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. The next phrase that has to do with our riches in Christ comes from Ephesians 3, verse 8. There Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now that word unfathomable is a Greek word, anexiniastas. Difficult word to pronounce. And it looks like this. It is spelled A-N-E. Then we have a C-H-N-I-A-S-T-O-O-S. A-N-E-X-I-C-H-N-I-A-S-T-O-S. Onyx ichneostas. And this word is used only a couple of times in Scripture, and it relates to something that is impossible to the understand on the basis of careful examination or investigation. It is something that be- goes beyond the normal frame of reference that is ours on the basis of either rationalism or empiricism. We can only know it because it has been described to us from the Word of God. That's why Paul says that the responsibility that he had as, a, as the apostle to the Gentiles and by application, this is part of the job of a pastor teacher, is to teach the riches of Christ that are beyond comprehension. We cannot, we can teach them what the Word of God has revealed. It doesn't mean we can't understand them to some degree, but we will never understand them completely. They go beyond our, our comprehension. They are innumerable, and they are so vast and so profound that, that we can never bankrupt them. So Paul states that his role as an apostle is to teach the unfathomable, the impossible to comprehend riches of Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, in his closing prayer from that chapter, he prays that God would grant to you, that is to the Ephesian believers, 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. So this has to do with the empowerment, the riches of Christ, the riches of God's grace, provide us with the power, the strength, through God the Holy Spirit, to live the spiritual life. So he gives us, once again, everything we need to live the Christian life. And then we are reminded of the promise in Philippians 4.19 that my God shall supply all your needs, not some of them, not the ones that, that are common to everybody else that you think are common to everybody else, but that he will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Once again, the standard is his riches, his infinite wealth. God has provided more than enough for us in every arena of life to solve every situation, every problem, every difficulty. No matter what you're facing, the solution is all always grounded in the positional truth that we have in Jesus Christ. Then in Colossians 1.27, Paul states, to whom God willed to make known, that is to us God willed to make known, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So this has to do with the fact that in the church age, which is the age of mystery doctrine, mystery refers to doctrine and to uh, information that has not been revealed beforehand in history. It's not some guessing game, but it has to do with something that was not revealed in earlier ages. And this is a technical term to refer to all the doctrines related to the Christian life in, in the church age. The church age was not foreseen by the Old Testament prophets. They saw events up through the first advent, and they saw events from the second advent on, but they did not see, the, and, and from the tribulation on, but they did not see events that took place between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church. That's, <clears throat> that age, the church age, is called the mystery age, and the doctrine related to the spiritual life in this age is part of that mystery doctrine. And that relates to all that we have in Christ. Believers in the Old Testament were not in Christ. They were not baptized in Christ. They were not in union with Christ. They did not have the 40 things that we have in Jesus Christ. Their spiritual life had a different basis than the one we have in the church age. Colossians 2.2, Paul says that their praise that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Notice the phraseology there. He says that as we grow, we are taking the potential wealth and making it actual, that we might attain to all the wealth. The word attain, of course, is not in the Greek, but it's added in order to make sense of the passage, and it's a good addition. Attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. See, we have it. It's all given to us at the instant of salvation, but you don't know it. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, probably all you knew at that moment in time was that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. You realized you were a sinner and that the Scriptures taught that you were under condemnation and that if you died without Christ, you would spend eternity in the lake of fire. But after you were saved, you did not know exactly what happened to you at that instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone. You were unaware of the fact that you were regenerated unless that happened to be explained to you in uh, the gospel presentation. You didn't realize that at that instant you were baptized into Christ, that you were identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. You did not know that you were at that instant indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and that your body became a temple for the indwelling of the second person of the Trinity and that now God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all take up residence in you. You were not aware of the fact that you were positionally sanctified at that time. There were so many things that we were ignorant of, and the only way we come to know them 
is by coming to Bible class week in, week out, and consistently learning and being reminded of these spiritual assets because they are the basis for the spiritual life. That's the whole point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, and that is that on the basis of that identification with Christ, we have been given all of the resources we need to be able to live the spiritual life and to experience all of the happiness, all of the joy, and all of the benefits that God promises us in his word. So when we look at Colossians 2.2, Paul states that we want to attain to the wealth. This is, this is taking that, that, that potential that is ours. We, we, we learn about it only as we grow, as we come to Bible class. We begin to learn about these riches, and then we learn how they are to be applied, some of them through the various spiritual skills, the problem-solving devices, and that we take that wealth that's in the bank account and we begin to move it out of the bank account and we begin to uh, cash checks and we begin to spend those assets in terms of applic- in, in, in the sense of application in relationship to the problems that we face in life. So we're t- to attain to all the wealth that comes from. How do we get there? It comes from the full assurance of understanding. There has to be an understanding. There has to be the teaching of doctrine, and you have to come to that point where you understand what you've been given in Christ before you can apply it. You can't know or you can't apply what you don't know. And you can't know something unless, first of all, you take the time and the discipline and uh, to, to come to Bible class and make that a priority in your life. If uh, your doctrine, if doctrine is not the highest priority in your life, then you're never going to make it in the Christian life. It is a tremendous challenge to renovate the thinking in our soul, and it doesn't just happen uh, because we want it to happen. It happens only by making it a priority, getting tapes. If you can't make it to Bible class on Wednesday night, if you work, then you have to get the tapes, and you have to, even if you come to class, you can get the, the old tapes and listen to them again and again and again, and it is a constant reminder for us of everything that God has provided for us. We tend to forget and we tend to need to be reminded again and again of what we have. So we attain to the wealth of what God has already provided from us through an understanding of doctrine. And the result of that is a true knowledge, that is, epinosis, of God's mystery. In 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, that is, material gain, but on God who richly supplies us with what? All things. There we run into that word, uh, the plural, apos, once again, that he supplies us with all things, and we are to be thankful for all things. Now, the problem is that most, most Christians are like the Corinthians. They're living impoverished lives because they don't know, or they've never taken the time to learn, or they're just ignoring the realities that we have in Jesus Christ. There are three reasons that Christians fail to do this. Number one is there's a failure to learn. That can be because they don't have a pastor that teaches, uh, because we live in a society and in an age when in most churches there is a rejection of doctrinal study. In fact, the level of rejection of doctrinal teaching today is higher, I think, than it's ever been before, at least in the history of this nation. People don't want doctrine. They don't want to come to Bible class two, three, four times a week. They don't want to take the time to uh, not listen to their favorite music or favorite talk show when they're out in the car and pop a tape in. Instead, they would rather uh, just come on Sunday morning because that's, that's uh, convenient. 
But as I've said again and again and again, if you think you're going to exchange the human viewpoint thinking in your soul for divine viewpoint by showing up for one hour on Sunday morning, you're fooling God, and you're, you're fooling yourself, and you're playing games with God. You're not being honest. You have not correctly assessed the dimension of the problem. And the problem is that the Scripture says that the heart, that is the thinking of man, is de- deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. And the, the problem with the deceit is that we've convinced ourselves that we're not all that bad. And what the Scripture says is, no, you're a lot worse. Like that book that came out, that psychobabble book that came out back in the, back in the uh, 70s, I'm okay and you're okay. Well, what the Bible says is, I'm not okay and neither are you. Not only that, we're both a whole lot worse than we ever thought we were. And the only way to get past that is through completely redoing the thinking in our soul. And as I've stated many times, it's hard enough to think. It's even harder to think about thinking. And not only do we think wrong thoughts, but the methodology of our thinking is wrong. So we have to redo the content of our thinking, but we have to overhaul how we think. And if you just overhaul the content of your thought without changing the way you think, then you're going to be thinking thinking in human viewpoint methodology with what you think is divine viewpoint content. But remember, it's the same principle as a right thing done in a wrong way. If you're thinking right thoughts, but you're doing it with wrong methodology, then the result is still going to be wrong. You can't wed divine viewpoint content to human viewpoint thinking methodology and get anywhere. And the only way that we can overhaul our thinking from the ground floor up is to consistently expose ourselves to the teaching of God's Word where you hear things over and over and over and over again and suddenly one day the light's going to go off and you're going to finally begin to see how it relates to your own thinking. But that's how growth takes place. So one problem we have today is people reject doctrinal teaching. They don't want that. They would rather go to church and be entertained. They would rather go and have a lot of emotion. They would rather go and be subjective and have a chance to uh, explore all of their feelings and and just wallow in uh, the subjectivity of their emotion. But that's not the biblical methodology. Second reason people have problems today is that we have so substituted human viewpoint truth for divine viewpoint truth that uh, it's blinded most believers. They are operating on either a materialistic orientation to the world or they're operating on a psychological orientation to the world or many of the other are are postmodern orientation to the world. And because of that, they can't even see divine viewpoint truth. And then the third reason is just good old-fashioned carnality. Christians would rather be carnal than spiritual and going through the process of the spiritual life. What we have to realize is that God has provided everything for us. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1-4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him. And then he specifically isolates two things. He says, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, as soon as we come to this, once again, people who tend to have interpretation immediately want to jump and relate this to the uh, Gifts of articulation, such as tongues, in verse in chapter 12 and 13, or knowledge is a spiritual gift, and that's leaping over uh, Paul's use of these, this terminology many times between chapter one and chapter 12. The word translated speech is the word logos, 
And if we look at how Lagos is used in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, it has to do with message. And that they were enriched in all things, in all speech, that is, uh, literally here, it has to do with its end plus the dative of means. They were enriched by every message. In other words, they have heard the truth over and over and over again. And secondly, by means of all knowledge. They have been taught the truth. This phrase in, by, by, should be translated by means of all, all, uh, all, message, all the messages and all of the knowledge that they have been given. Uh, verse 6 further expands this by saying, even as, and this is, a, uh, this is stepping up, uh, using a comparison here, that even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Now, kathos, which is the Greek word that it's at the beginning of verse 6, is a comparative. It's comparing something in verse 6, or in verse 5, to something in verse 6. What it is comparing in verse 5 is that last phrase, in all speech and all knowledge. But the comparison is to the testimony concerning Christ, which was confirmed in you. Now, the testimony of verse 6 is talking about the, the doctrine that they were taught relative to both the gospel and the spiritual life, and that that information became usable doctrine in their soul, and it was evident in their life. So when, it's, when we read that phrase, the testimony of Christ, that is a phrase based on the Greek word mart- martyrion, the translated testimony has to do with a testimony or a record or a witness in a courtroom. And so this has to do with verbal statements of truth. So if verbal statements of truth are part of the comparison in verse 6, then that must be what speech and knowledge relate to in verse 5. Let me see if I can diagram this. What we have here is a comparison. Just as you might compare uh, two objects, and trying to explain something by way of analogy, Paul is going to explain logos and gnosis. This is, logos is often used to relate to a message, and gnosis is often used to relate to knowledge, in primarily academic knowledge, because all epinosis begins with uh, academic knowledge. And so he's going to draw a comparison. Now, the comparison is indicated by that phrase in the Greek, kathos, and is compared to a testimony. Now, testimony over here is an, an expression a verbal expression related to either the gospel or the Christian life. Therefore, well, if this is the point of comparison, and this is going to be analogous, uh, uh, the, ver- the testimony is going to be analogous to something in verse 5, then message and knowledge here are not going to be spiritual gifts. They're not going to be spiritual gifts. And it's amazing, almost every commentary I checked on this, and almost everybody goes to this, wants to jump all the way into 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Now, that is clearly going to be evident in this introduction and in, this, um, opening, in these opening verses because, as I've always said in Paul's introduction, he always gives sort of a clue to the major themes that he's going to cover in the, in the epistle. So he starts off talking about the message and the academic knowledge that they have been given, and this is made evident in the testimony of their own life. It's confirmed to them. This testimony is confirmed in their lives. With the result that they are lacking, and that's verse 7, with the result that 
They are not lacking in any gift. Now, this is where we start getting into spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are only made manifest as one begins to mature in Christ. It's just like when you are a two-year-old, you don't know what your talents are. Now, there may be a few two-year-olds who are above the learning curve, and they may begin to manifest a few talents here or there, but for most of us, we don't know that we have any sort of musical ability or athletic ability or thinking ability until uh, we begin to get past our years in uh, elementary school, junior high, and high school. For some of us, we may still be trying to figure out what our talents are. But what happens is, as you mature, you find that you gravitate to certain activities, certain interests, and you begin to show that you're what your likes and your dislikes are, and that's usually related to areas where we have some degree of success or some degree of ability. Well, the same thing is true in the spiritual life. Too often what you get into because of the uh, so-called church growth movement, they uh, always emphasize that as soon as somebody becomes a believer, you need to get them through some kind of Sunday school course where they can identify their spiritual gifts, and then they have these, uh, these little tests that they hand out to people. Some of you have taken those before. I know that I saw a bunch of those when I, back in the 70s when I was a young believer. And, uh, you know, you take these tests, answer these 15, 20, 30 questions, and then uh, uh, you can figure out what your, what, what your strengths and weaknesses are as a believer, and that gives you some idea what your spiritual gift is. Well, those are all fallacious. Don't get caught in that trap. Um, remember, most spiritual gifts are also required of all believers. For example, you may not have the gift of teaching, but if you're a parent, it is your responsibility to teach your children. Not everybody has the spiritual gift of giving, but all believers are responsible to give to support the local church ministry and to support missionaries. Um, it, is not, it may not be your spiritual gift to evangelize, but every believer is responsible to witness. And so spiritual gifts do not mean that, uh, that if you're not gifted in that area, you don't have a responsibility there. So as you grow up as a believer, as you go through maturity, you should get involved trying to teach Sunday school. You should witness. You should be involved in giving. All of these different areas of the responsibility of your priesthood. And what you will discover in maturity is that God has gifted you in certain areas. There are some areas that you really enjoy, really seem to be a benefit to the body of Christ, and they will become evident. And, and some, maybe you won't know what your spiritual gift is. That's not important. What's important is that you function in all these areas of your priesthood, and uh, sooner or later your spiritual gift may become evident, but if you have one of these unseen spiritual gifts, such as some area of helps or some area of administration, uh, then it may never really become evident to you, and that may be just, just the role that you have as an unseen believer who is out there giving or praying in support of local church ministry. And this will be confirmed as a result of the doctrine that is in you. And that's what, exactly what Paul is getting at in verse 6, is that as we grow and mature and apply doctrine, the message, that is the doctrine that we've been taught, becomes confirmed in us. And eventually it is demonstrated through spiritual gifts. Now Paul is emphasizing in verse 7 that among these carnal Christians, these carnal Corinthians who are in such spiritual rebellion, that they have all of this. They've had a confirmation uh, in their life. They, they aren't lacking in any gift. In fact, he says that, um, that they've been gifted more than many congregations, just in terms of the de degree of the grace related to each spiritual gift. In verse 7 he says, You are not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the point here is to look to the future. This has to do with per our personal sense of eternal destiny, that the present operation of a spiritual life 
is directly related to who we're going to be and what we're going to be when the Lord Jesus Christ appears at the second coming and we have a uh, place in the uh, <clears throat> millennial kingdom to rule and reign with him. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, we are told in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, Paul says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will appear to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. See, the, he, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians because they do look forward to the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something for which we will get a reward if we are positively looking forward to the return of Christ and preparing for that time. Now, the same principle is emphasized in Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the, of, our, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Just as an aside here, this is one of the uh, passages in Scripture where Jesus Christ is specifically called God. Now, the, this emphasis on the return of Christ is there because that is where we're headed. We have to live our life today with the future in mind. We have to make decisions today in light of where we're going to be and who we're going to be in eternity. So the Corinthians are doing that to some degree, and Paul is uh, encouraging that and praising them for that. Then in verse 8, we go on to emphasize the same truth. Who shall also confirm you to the end. That is the doctrine of eternal security. Jesus Christ will confirm us to the end. Or, excuse me, it looks like Jesus Christ um, is the subject of that verb. But it is not. The who there refers back to God, who is really the subject of this entire uh, prayer. If it were Jesus Christ, now Jesus Christ appears to be the near uh, antecedent there, because that's the last noun in verse 7. But it states, who shall also, if, if we replaced it with Jesus Christ in verse 8, it would read, Jesus Christ shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that would be redundant. So the who at verse 8 is God the Father, who shall also confirm you to the end. God the Father is going to keep us, and he is going to preserve us in our salvation. That's the doctrine of eternal salvation, and we will be uh, confirmed blameless in the end. Now, he's talking to these carnal Corinthians, and we haven't gotten into all of their carnality yet, but there's just about, uh, there's not any sin in, that you can think of that they weren't enjoying in their church life. This is one of the most um, carnal congregations in all of history. And yet of them, Paul says that God will confirm them to the end, that is the end of their, of their life, blameless. To the end, that is the end, the goal of the Christian life, which is heaven. They will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that has to do with the fact that our salvation is not based on who and what we are, but on what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then he closes in verse 9 by reminding us of the basic principle underlying eternal security, and that is that it is the faithfulness of God and not our faithfulness. God is faithful through whom we were called into fellowship with his Son. And here the term calling into fellowship has to do with that initial fellowship we have with Jesus Christ at the instant of salvation, which is to be the standard for our spiritual life. However, we often, we often uh, sin and we often get out of fellowship, and that's why we have 1 John 1, 9, to get back in fellowship. So verses 4 through 9 begin the introduction to the Corinthians and emphasize his thanksgiving for what they have in Christ, and this is the same that every one of us as in Christ. And the emphasis here is that Paul wants them to understand that it is what they have in Christ, not 
what they have in their own ability. Because the Corinthians seem to be prone to say, well, we can't really live the Christian life. We, can't, we have all of these problems, and we really don't have what we need to solve the problem. And what Paul is starting off with is a reminder that we have everything we need to solve any and every problem that we will face in the Christian life. And the starting point is the grace of God which was given to us in Christ Jesus with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of everything that you have given us in Christ, our riches in Christ, that we are more than wealthy. When it comes to spiritual wealth and spiritual assets, we not only have everything that we will need, we have more than enough because it is ultimately rooted and grounded in your power and your provision of God the Holy Spirit and your word. What is incumbent upon us is to come to understand what these assets are and then to put them in place and apply them in our life. Father, we pray that we would respond to that challenge. We pray, too, for anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now, right where they sit, they can make that sure and certain. It's not a matter of what you've done or what you haven't done. It's not a matter of church membership. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of religious observation. It is simply a matter of faith, a matter of trust. Who are you trusting for your eternal salvation? Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all you have to do right now, right where you sit. All that is necessary is for you to put your faith alone in Christ alone and you will have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.